0: The Worker-Learner podcast is brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education. Bringing together the expertise of Griffith University's academics and research centres, our professional learning is designed to deliver creative solutions for the workplace of tomorrow. Whether you are looking for opportunities for yourself or your team, we have you covered.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Johanna Nala and I'll be your host for this episode of The Worker Learner. I am a climate adaptation scientist, which means I'm interested in how we deal with change and how do we make better decisions in a changing climate. My guest today is James Thompson, Senior Vice President of the Asia Pacific Division of FM Global. Who or what is FM Global, you may ask? Well, James has described FN Global as the biggest company you have never heard of. FN Global is a property insurance company, but that seems to be underselling what they do. In a world that is rapidly changing and one in which our understanding of risk and resilience and adaptation is becoming increasingly complex, FN Global has a fairly unique vision and a fairly unique way of operating and they've been doing it for nearly 200 years. Now it also includes a cutting-edge immersive training facility in Singapore that I cannot wait to ask James about. So let's get started. James, welcome.
0: Well, Joanna, thank you very much for having me. Nice to see you.
1: I briefly introduced FM Global in the intro, but there is so much more to the story. Can you tell me the history of your organization? So how did FM come into being and what makes FM globally unique?
0: Yeah, so Joanna, the the story actually begins almost two hundred years ago. Um, it actually began in eighteen thirty five, and just for reference for everyone, it's the same year that Melbourne was founded, eighteen thirty five. And so around that time, textiles were um, were a big big thing. They, they were coming into vogue as it, the mill industry in New England in the United States was really taking off. And uh, one of the things with textiles in that uh, that time was the factories that made them burnt down fairly regularly. And uh, what became evident for, for all the owners of these textile mills was that uh, they couldn't buy insurance. And so when they, um, one of the mill owners there, a guy by the name of Zachariah Allen in uh, around the Providence area, he decided that he was going to try and do some smart things to minimise the chance of having fires or having explosions in his facility and he built his factory out of um out of safer uh, materials he put in the first fire systems he uh, he controlled uh, the the heating processes such that they wouldn't ignite the uh, the factory did all of these smart things and went back to his insurer and said uh, all right i've done all these smart things so can you do something for my insurance well insurers like they often do today said well the good risks pay for the bad i'm sorry but your, your premiums are going up again and so he was pretty dismayed and uh, he walked away from that and uh, got together with a group of his, his um, peers in the in the mill industry. And they clubbed together and they, uh, they formed what became one of the first mutual insurance companies, which was essentially a, uh, a grouping of, of people really backing one another. But they backed one another financially as an insurer with one premise. And that premise was going to be they were going to try and make sure that they would protect that pool of money, making themselves as resilient as possible to try and reduce the chance of fires, reduce the chance of devastating things happening to them. And so this concept grew and was really successful over, over decades and then centuries and grew a number of these mutuals around various factory groupings, and they became known as the factory mutuals in around the 30s, the 1930s. And those, um, those factory mutuals then began to merge over time and then in around 1999, they became, became one company, FM Global, the F and the M standing for Factory Mutual. Um, and we are now uh, one of the biggest uh, mutual insurance companies that you've never heard of. Um, but still with that premise and that approach of trying to, uh, to really engineer risk and to try and bring our owners and, uh, and insureds the uh, advice on how they can uh, remain resilient
1: Hmm, so that's such a lovely story in terms of really demonstrating the kind of learning by doing approach, but also, you know, common pooling, pooling of risk and getting institutions or organizations together. What have you seen in, in terms of from, from FN Global's uh, perspective? What are some of the main challenges facing the industry as companies are adapting to changing climate? So, I mean, <laughs> we've seen so many new stuff. News recently on the records being broken, on heat waves, on floods, on pretty much everything. What do, what do those challenges look like for you? Yeah, look,
0: I, I, I told the story of FM through the lens of fire, and that was really the leading cause of events that would affect um, factory owners or industry owners um, over the, the last couple of centuries. And they're still a leading cause of loss. But increasingly, over the last uh, 20, 30 years, climate-related perils have really grown in importance to, to our, um, our owners. And, and just for reference, our owners are um, typically Fortune 1000 companies. They're, it's big industry. Um, in Australia, we, we insure and have, have on our client base about 15 to 20% of the, the large companies in Australia. And what they've all seen over the last 20 and 30 years increasingly is the, the prevalence of perils such as windstorm, perils such as flood, bushfires, hail, all beginning to grow as an impact in terms of their business and, and in terms of the losses that we pay. And so increasingly, we're focusing more of our engineering knowledge on how we can um, harden help our clients harden their facilities against those those climate perils. So, so every day we're, um, we're, we're hearing more, seeing more losses and hearing more from our clients um, of, uh, of needs to adapt to the climate perils. So, what we've been doing is, um, is really as we've always done over our history, is trying to learn from the events that we're, we're paying loss. Uh, we, we apply a lot of science and engineering research through our facilities in, in the US and, uh, and in Singapore. To developing knowledge, we can take to our clients of, of practical ways that they can reduce the um, impact um, on on their facilities.
1: Yeah, and I mean that's that's so important in terms of being able to be also kind of client driven um, and and reducing risk as well.
0: The reality is there, there are really practical things that can be done, and it doesn't take a take a lot of cost. It doesn't take a lot of um, investment to, to make some smart decision and we, we work from the uh, from the premise that the majority of all loss is preventable and that fundamentally means there are always things that you can do to, uh, to become resilient.
1: Um, what would you say that has been the biggest shift in thinking that has occurred in your organizations like let's say in the last last two years in this space?
0: Well, look, it, it is is—it's climate resilience. The, the biggest shift has been the increasing focus of our clients um, on, on climate resilience. And, um, you know, just last week we had our, our advisory board get together and that's the, um, the chief financial officers, CF, CFOs, CEOs and chief operating officers of some of our biggest clients. And the number one thing that they were talking to us about was uh, about their concerns about, about climate risk. And their interest in some of the products that we're bringing to them um, that help them not only harden themselves but um, but also understand and be able to report on on some of the uh, the perils that impact them. So one of the things, as an example, that we've been brought to to those clients is some climate reporting tools to help them with their TCFD uh, reporting um, that help them. Quantify exactly what the impact on their facilities is going to be today, as well as looking forward. Um, you know, one of the one of the tools that we've rolled out to our clients allows them to look at their portfolio of locations around the world and uh, and understand not just what the exposures are like today in terms of floods, bushfires, damaging winds, but also what they're going to be after climate change impacts those facilities. So it's looking at those same facilities in 20 and, and 30 years' time with sea level rise, subsidence, drying of forest areas to, uh, to help them understand the impacts in the future. Now, what that allows them to do is figure out where they're going to invest going forward. So they're the sorts of tools that um, certainly in the last couple of years, we've really looked at, at bringing more of those forward-looking tools to, uh, to uh, clients.
1: Yeah, I mean the the climate related, related financial disclosure. I mean we know that in New Zealand that's already a law and, and there has been discussions that maybe that next year we will see something similar in Australia. I'm really interested in terms of in terms of the clients and, and there is this kind of climate risk mapping tools. We are seeing increasingly uh, companies and organizations looking, you know, quantifying for instance their climate current climate risk and, and then looking into the future, like you said. How much of are you seeing in terms of the what we would term like climate adaptation planning? So kind of that's the next phase. So we have identified the risks, uh, what they are for operation or for a strategic um, policy. But uh, what are you seeing in terms of then putting in place those kind of risk reducing measures?
0: Oh look, that's that's again harking back to just the discussions last week. I think I meant just in the last week um, there were. 15 at our advisory board, CFOs, CEOs, uh, further 10 meetings, every single one of those discussions. It was either, If it wasn't the first discussion item, it was the second. Um, you know, every single one of our clients has this at the top of the board agenda and they're looking for solutions and ways that they can practically reduce the impact of uh, climate on their businesses. Th- this is an imperative for, uh, for businesses today. You just can't ignore it.
1: It is smart business, isn't it? You know, in terms of trying to think think also about the impacts in the future.
0: Absolutely, I mean, you know, talking to these clients, the one thing that kept they kept on saying is that um, you know, for them, resilience is about being in control of their own destiny. It's not being a victim of these perils. It's about planning for them and and being proactive in trying to make sure they've hardened themselves against what nature might throw at them. And so we come at it from an engineering perspective of saying the majority of all loss is preventable. There are always things you can do and we will bring practical solutions for those clients of ways that they can can make their facilities hardened and be ready for what nature throws at them.
1: That's a beautiful definition of resilience because I think a lot of the times, especially in academia, we look at resilience as something more about maintaining status quo or making sure that the operations can keep going as they are. But I think that kind of active, active definition of resilience is really important because there is a lot of, you know, with the losses and damages and, and globally as well, a lot of the discussion when it comes to climate change is very negative, you know, especially when it comes to impact. So it's, I think it's so important to be able to communicate those messages that there are things that we can do. There are these adaptation options um, and, and tools that companies can actually use to reduce the risks also in the future. The way I came to, came to know about your um, your company was that I was looking for innovative examples of this kind of practical solutions that are available for for different different companies, and I'm extremely excited about <laughs> your training facility in in Singapore uh, with where clients can actually go through, uh, and you you know have. Augmented reality and immersive environments so they can actually experience the risks uh, in in the virtual sense that their, their businesses might be facing from these multiple climate impacts. I'm really curious where did the idea to come from to build this immersive disaster training facility for your clients?
0: Yeah, it came from a range of discussions of a, a few years back where we were talking about. Um, which of our clients were the, the fastest adopters of our recommendations and it's probably no surprise that the people who've experienced uh, some sort of event some sort of catastrophic event firsthand they tended to be the ones that were most receptive to learning how to never have that happen to them again um, and i think in our own ex- our own experience you know if you've had a car accident you you drive a lot safer for the, for the next uh, the next few days Few weeks or months, hopefully years. If you've had an event happen to you firsthand, you've experienced it, then you're more more likely to take measures. And so we looked at that and thought, well, how can we give people um, firsthand touching and feeling and experiencing of of events without them actually um, suffering the the pain of, of the event itself? And so. So that sort of gave Genesis to um, to us building these these labs. And uh, the idea of these facilities for your listeners is to help owners of industry uh, understand some of the things that could happen to their facilities. Um, and we've set up a series of laboratories in Singapore where a factory owner can walk through. And see flammable liquids, for example, and see how those flammable liquids might escape from their, from their processes, ignite and cause damage. We've got uh, laboratories associated with how fire protection works. And uh, so everybody who walks through will walk away with an appreciation of how, how sprinklers can control a fire in a very, very simple way. But the most, the most exciting lab that gets the most attention from uh, most people going through is our climate lab. And, uh, and we, we really showcase the, uh, the impact of, of windstorm, of flooding um, and the like on, on industrial facilities. And we, we point to some practical solutions that can be done um, to, to mitigate the impact. So as an example, we've got a flood table where we simulate a flood on a factory and we play the game of see if you can keep the water out of the factory um, as the water's water's rising and approaching this this factory. Uh, we've got floodgates and we stand them right next to sandbags and demonstrate to people how these very simple floodgates can keep water out of a flood water out of a facility and how much easier that is compared to loading up sandbags. Uh, I don't know yeah, I want your, your listeners to imagine lifting a twenty kilo sandbag, and how many sandbags that takes to keep water out of a facility. It's it's huge, huge effort, um, and very slow to put in place, as opposed to some of these engineered barriers that are very simple, very easy to erect, and then and not that expensive. So, so really, these labs are, are about allowing people to to touch and feel and experience uh, both the perils that can impact them. Um, but also to uh, experience some of the the practical solutions that can keep them safe and um, keep them resilient against the the climate perils that they're exposed to.
1: And in the process of of, um, imagining the facility, what it would be like, what was the process? So you'd have to probably engage with disaster experts, technology experts, design experts. Would you like to unpack that? kind of design and planning process, how the facility came to be?
0: Yeah, the facility in Singapore, um, as I said, the genesis of it was some ideas about bringing ideas of loss um, events uh, to our clients. And so the first thing was figuring out what labs we were going to put in place. And that was driven by our, our loss experience, You know, thinking about where we were paying the most dollars, thinking about where clients were experiencing damaging events the most. And that that shaped which labs we would bring. Um, but then the practical building the facility itself, it started with site selection. We first of all made sure it was outside of a flood zone. Um, we also chose Singapore deliberately because it is a low natural hazard um, location. It's not exposed to cyclones. It's not exposed to major natural events. Um, so we put it on high ground. Um, and then we looked at the facility itself and how it was going to be built. Um, and so we used our own the advice that we would give to our client base. You know, we we looked at the uh, the materials that we used, and then finally we look we used our own engineering to um, to make sure that what was on the design pages was actually installed. You'd be surprised how many times you have a good set of drawings that specify, for example. Um, equipment that's going to be non-combustible but the builder decides to put in a different material and suddenly you have compromised the facility so our engineers were, were monitoring the facility as it was being built to make sure that um, all the designs matched what was uh, what was put in place
1: And how popular has the, um has the new facility been in, in terms of clients coming through
0: oh they love it uh, it's been fantastic and it's not just clients you know we're, we're working with universities. Like yourselves, um, to bring them through and use it as an education facility. You know, as I said earlier on, we are a we're a mutual insurance company. We're owned by our policyholders. We're not owned by Wall Street. We're not owned by the Australian Stock Exchange. We're owned by our policyholders, and and that gives us a slightly different lens in terms of what we what we do with our knowledge. Um, our owners tell us that they they want us to try and use our knowledge to try and try and improve the quality of, of risk generally across society. So, you know, one of the things that we, we are trying to do is use it to as a place for general education to, to educate business owners and educate um, those in Asia-Pacific uh, about the risks generally, so not just for clients but uh, for academia, for, um, for industry. We, we've been working with a number of the code bodies in Korea and other parts of Asia. Um, and the the response has been overwhelming. It's the the, the last thing is people walk out the door is, oh, can I bring such and such back? They all want to bring their friends. They want to bring their colleagues. Um, in fact, the <laughs> the most telling piece was I actually had my wife take a tour, and uh, after all this time, after walking through there, she finally she said to me, "I think I finally understand what you do for a living." <laughs> so, <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty powerful in terms mm. of. Letting people really understand um, the, the power of engineering against risk.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, um, and that's the best feedback, isn't it? That, you know that you are delivering something that is really eye-opening and really off practical value. And, uh, and it's
0: driving outcomes. I mean, it, it has driven a number of our clients after they've been through to actually spend money on the on the uh, the things that are being recommended there.
1: Well, having having worked in this space, what would you say that what are the key skills that you see organisation and company company staff needs training in order to enable to make good decisions in a changing climate?
0: Well, I think it's about knowledge. Uh, we we talk about knowledge transfer as being um, both, really being the, the most important thing to our business, and it's knowledge transfer amongst our our own staff as well as knowledge transfer. To our, our client base, because really what we're bringing is is knowledge around how they can protect themselves, and so um, you know it's that that skill around um, about being receptive to new ideas and, and knowledge, um, and um, you know to allow for um, that that open mindedness to bring in new ideas. Uh, it's probably probably the number one the number one skill.
1: And how much, how much in, in the work that you do and, and the clients that you have, how much is it reliant on um, climate science or climate scenarios? It's one of the questions I get, <laughs> I get asked, asked a lot in, in terms of, so there's so many different climate scenarios kind of for the future. How do you know when you are thinking about the next 30, 40, 50 years of, of your company and what that, or what that sector might look like? What's the advice that you usually give?
0: So climate science is um, it's, it's kind of the starting point for looking forward. It's uh, I talked about our um, climate change impact report and that's, that's that forward-looking assessment of our clients and it allows, as I said before, for us to look forward at all of their locations around the world to establish how, climate's going to impact them. And climate science is the foundation of that, of, of how much the um, seas are going to rise, how much subsidence is going to affect them, how the drying of forests is going to impact bushfire risk, um, the severity of cyclones, all of that client kind of science really underpins that reporting um, and plays into the engineering solutions to that climate, um, to whatever the nature is throwing at the facilities. Um, that our engineers need to work with. So so that, that climate, climate science is a, is a key foundation um, for our engineering um, and uh, the quantification of the uh, exposures that we're, we're, uh, we're looking at.
1: So if we think about the future, so where do you see FM Global innovating? And let's say 30 years from now, what difference has it made in the world?
0: Well, I, I think I'd, I'd look back 200 years and... Uh, you know, we have innovated for two hundred for the last two hundred years since 1835 to to really follow where our clients are going with um, with their technologies, and making sure as, as those new new technologies impact their facilities that we're keeping pace with science to keep them resilient. So as I look forward, it's really looking looking at where our clients are going with you know electrification of their facilities and the, the risks that, that come with that as they they're building their, their facilities in new ways um, you know with the, the risks surrounding things like um, like batteries, um, new technologies surrounding energy sources, um, solar we're, we're spending a, a lot of time around the renewables at the moment um, in how do we make sure those renewable technologies are built resilient, and that the risks that those renewable technologies bring into the facilities that um, we're engineering well to assure that they're um, having minimal impact. So, you know, that'll continue to evolve. Industry continues to evolve. Um, the climate is just going to keep on throwing more and more at our client base. And so we, we you know, our evolution is going to be staying ahead of, ahead of that to help keep our, uh, our clients resilient.
1: Excellent, thanks so much, James. I think if I had to sum up in a nutshell this conversation, I think Ethan Global, like you said, resilience is about being in control of your destiny and success, and I think your company is a living example of that.
0: Thanks, Joe, and uh, look, as I said, we're uh, we're really about uh, the philosophy that the majority of all loss is preventable, and that there really are some smart things that uh, that can be done to to stay resilient.
1: Excellent. Thanks so much for your time.
0: Thanks, Joanna. The Worker Learner Podcast was brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education.